from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we are talking about it is raining iron, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe. We record the show every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about science is boring. But first, the news. Hey, space cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an amazing show today where we talk about all the amazing, beautiful, gorgeous, and lovely things in this universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here in Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at Space Radio show.com to get your question on the air you can also follow along live with our space cadets tuning in from around the world including but not limited to ireland pell city alabama duluth minnesota ashburton new zealand vapava slovenia dallas texas athens greece austin texas san francisco california anchorage alaska washington dc darmstadt germany london uk and christ church new zealand we will take questions that the space cadets send because honestly i have only prepped less than 10 minutes of material that's right we've got a half hour long show and the majority of it i have no idea what i'm talking about so get those questions in Before I start taking questions, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news that I caught recently. And how could I possibly ignore Iron Rain? It sounds like an 80s rock metal band, but no. It is a real thing. Astronomers discovered a new exoplanet called WASP-76b, and eventually it'll have a cool name. Can we just call it the Iron Rain Planet? I mean, what are we waiting for? Anyway, it's 640 light years away from Earth, which is kind of far, but not exactly very far at all. It was discovered with the Espresso instrument, and I'm sure Espresso stands for something very nerdy and astronomical, but we'll just call it Espresso. It's a ground-based telescope in Chile's Atacama Desert, which is a gorgeous place, by the way. If you ever want to feel like you're not on the Earth and stepping foot on alien world, it's hard to beat the Atacama Desert. So here's the thing with WASP-76b. It's a large planet. It's a gas giant. It is an exoplanet, which is a planet outside the solar system. It's orbiting another star. It is very, very, very close to its parent star. It orbits so close. It's a gas giant that's orbiting so close to its parent star that it's uh, tidally locked. It means one side of the planet always faces the star and one side of the planet always faces away from the star. 
because this gas giant is so close to its parent star, and its parent star isn't much bigger than the sun, it's, it's not an especially extreme star, but imagine something the size of Saturn or Jupiter squished up against the sun closer than the orbit of Mercury. That is what we're talking about here. And the temperature on the day side, and this day side is a permanent day side, the sun never sets on this planet, is over three thousand degrees Fahrenheit. If you want that converted into Celsius, it is extremely hot Celsius. Who cares about the scale? It's 3000 of anything is hot. And on the night side, it's relatively cooler. It's, if you want to take a break, it's only 2000 degrees in the shade, in the permanent shade on the night side of WASP-76b. So this temperature of 3000 Fahrenheit is hot enough to melt lead, all right? So if you were to toss, or sorry, melt iron, if you were to toss a bar of iron into this planet, it's so hot it would melt. And astronomers, by looking at the light that was filtering through the atmosphere of this planet on its way to the Earth, could detect the presence of iron on the day side, but not on the night side. So what we think is happening is that iron, gets or iron compounds get vaporized on the day side because it's so stinking hot but one side of the planet is hot the other side is cold there are extreme winds imagine hundred hundreds of miles an hour winds that are streaming carrying that heat from the day side over to the night side and so it pulls the iron around to the opposite end of the planet where it's cold enough for that iron to condense. So it forms little droplets and the droplets become heavy and they sink down into the atmosphere and they end up getting circulated back around to the day side where they get heated up and vaporized. And so there's this entire water cycle, but not of water, of iron. I swear I could probably do an exoplanet topic for every single episode of Space Radio because every single week there's something ridiculously awesome that we find in the universe. Seriously, nature is metal. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space, but you know what, let's, let's have a conversation. We've got a voicemail ready to go, and Greg, always at the ready, with his finger on the button, ready to press. That's what we call him, always ready Greg. Greg, play the tape. Hello, my name is Ashton. I have a question about the grandfather paradox. So, if you go back in time and kill your grandfather from before your mother or you were born, would it be possible to keep existing since you have left your timeline and it will erase you out of your timeline, but compared to time, you are no longer in the timeline? So, would it be possible to keep existing? Thank you. No, thank you, Ashton. Thank you for that really, really, really fun question. And that is that is a good question, a question I get a lot like this whole going back in time business and how to actually go about it and what would happen if you were to travel back in time. So you just invented a time machine. Then you traveled back in time six years ago, found your grandfather and kablammo, shot him dead, and then came back. But then wait a minute. How can you be back if your grandfather never existed? That means you were never born. You never existed. So how could you go back in time to kill your grandfather? There is a paradox. 
a lot of science fiction shows and TV shows and movies introduce this concept of timelines and parallel universes that, oh, if you go back in time, you kill your grandfather, then that creates a, somehow a new timeline, a new parallel universe where you don't exist. And then you can return to your universe where you do exist, or maybe you can travel back and forth. It gets a little bit confusing. That is all purely for plot excitement in movies. It's not grounded in in our understanding of time in, in physics. As far as we can tell, this is our one and only timeline. Like there's no such thing as other timelines. There's just the universe. This is a paradox. If time travel into the past is allowed, if that's a real thing, we have to answer a major question, which is how do we avoid such paradoxes? There are several answers to this question. One answer is we're not allowed to go travel back in time. Problem solved. No more paradox if you can't create the paradox in the first place. Okay, maybe, but we don't have any like firm rules as to why time travel into the past should be forbidden. There's no hard and fast law of physics that we can point to that says, yep, that's it. Uh, no time travel into the past because right here, this equation right here, we can't say that. That's a little frustrating. So maybe time travel into the past is allowed. We just haven't figured it out yet. Okay, so let's let's stretch this out a little bit longer. Let's say time travel into the past is allowed. How do we prevent paradoxes? Well, one way to prevent paradoxes is that if there is really only one universe and the past is really set and fixed and firm, then you will not be able to travel into the past to kill your own grandfather because the past has already happened. If your grandfather was going to be dead, you would already know it. The very fact that he is alive means there is no possible way for you to go back to affect the past because it is set in stone. Another potential resolution to the paradox is that our understanding of time is maybe a little bit off. Maybe time doesn't flow linearly like it does. Maybe that's an artifact of our consciousness. Maybe the past is a figment of our imaginations. As you can imagine, there's a lot of directions this can possibly go. There is a question here from the Space Cadets following up on that from Larry Beckham asking, what about the many worlds interpretation? If you're not familiar with the many worlds interpretation, this is one particular view of how subatomic processes work, one particular view of quantum mechanics. And in the many worlds interpretation, there are many there are indeed parallel universes that are all operating in parallel, in conjunction, kind of in lockstep. As we perform experiments, as randomness uh, rules our lives, then all possible branches are existing simultaneously. This does mean that there are parallel universes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there are parallel timelines. It doesn't mean that time travel into the past allows you to alter the past. It just means that different universes are operating in lockstep in parallel. Doesn't really say anything directly about the problems or opportunities 
of time travel into the past? Wonderful question. Thanks for getting us started, Ashton. Don't forget, you can call by going to spaceradioshow.com and leaving a voicemail. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio, and this show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash Sutter. P-M-S-U-T-T-E-R. And if you sign up to be a space cadet by the end of March, stay that way for three months. When my new book, How to Die in Space, comes out in June, I will send you a free autographed copy. I pinky swear it'll happen. But you have to sign up by the end of March. So if you're wondering about it, I would suggest doing it now. Like right now. You got your phone out? Patreon.com slash p.m. Sutter and sign up now. Otherwise, I'll see you after break. What a great opportunity. Do it during the break. Support for Space Radio on 90.5 WCBE comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work. Predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got so many questions from space cadets and callers ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams at spaceradioshow.com. First up from the Space Cadets, we've got Zach on YouTube asking, why is an exoplanet defined as outside of a solar system if it's within a star's gravity field? That's right. Uh, An exoplanet is a planet orbiting another star. It's outside of our solar system. Technically, there is only one solar system in the universe because the Latin name for our sun is Sol solar system every other system is a star or stellar system (sighs) don't blame me blame the astronomers okay they're very nitpicky about this kind of stuff trust me so an exoplanet is any planet orbiting any other star but the sun why because astronomers said so Luke Duke over on YouTube is asking about this planet, this exoplanet, WASP-76b that I talked about at the top of the show. Does it have a solid core or is it all liquid metal like our core? This planet is a gas giant. So what's inside of gas giant? Uh, We're not exactly sure. Presumably there is a solid core deep down there surrounded by a layer of some really weird, weird, weird stuff something like metallic hydrogen, uh, surrounded by atmospheric layers of apparently iron. Adam over on YouTube is asking a very interesting question. Uh, The biggest issue with colonizing the galaxy, he's ready to go. He's done with Earth, with, with hurricanes and snowstorms and deadly pandemics. He just wants to get out. He wants to colonize the galaxy. But of course, stars are kind of far away so we if we want to move around the galaxy we need to accelerate matter to relativistic speeds we have to get up to the speed of light which is kind of a challenge kind of a barrier so could adam is asking could we avoid it by manipulating matter on exoplanets with powerful lasers okay powerful lasers 
we've got some powerful lasers in the world. The most powerful lasers in the world are capable of operating for about a femtosecond. That's 10 to the minus 15 seconds. Any longer and they just melt the, the gear. Uh, any kind of laser that you could possibly imagine constructing on Earth with human engineering and energy sources is going to fade into minuscule proportions by, say, I don't know, the orbit of Mars. You might be able to see it, might be able to see like a little blink, 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 but shooting at another planet is just so ridiculously energetic and costly that it's just happening. It might actually be easier to travel among the stars like in giant boats. I'm not, I'm not joking. Jack Martinelli over on YouTube is asking a question I get all the time when it comes to the expanding universe. He's, he's asking, is, is the universe expanding or is matter shrinking? The universe is expanding. We only see the expansion of the universe at the very largest scales. We see galaxies, galaxies. Each galaxy is 100,000 light years across. The space between galaxies is growing larger. The actual size of the galaxies is remaining the same. And there are more Space Cat questions, but I had a really, really fun voicemail that I would love to play for you guys. We got a question here from, uh, looks like Dave Matthews. Great band you got there, Dave. Hi, Paul. I love your shows. They make me think, and here's a thought. Is it possible that instead of the Big Bang, the origin of our universe was more like a big poof as the universe suddenly came into existence and anything that appeared was by definition infinite everything? And tell Greg Dave Matthews says hi. Oh, uh, Greg, so apparently Dave Matthews says hi. You guys go way back. Uh, this is a very, very good question, uh, Mr. Matthews. <laughs> The expansion of years, what we call the Big Bang, is not at all a theory of the origins or the creation of the universe. Just get that out of your head altogether. It just isn't. The Big Bang is a story, is a mathematical model. It is a theory of the early history of the universe. In the very, very early universe, our universe, our entire cosmos was much, much smaller than it is today, much, much hotter and much, much denser. From that, we can do a bunch of calculations and make predictions about the structure of matter, about the abundance of elements, about the relationship between matter and energy. This is why we uh, think that this uh, story of the Big Bang is correct. But at the end of the day, we do not understand the origins of the universe. We do not understand if that question even makes sense. We do not know what the very earliest moments of the universe is like. We just don't. We're out. We don't know. Our mathematics, our theory, our understanding can't handle it. Could we potentially handle in the future? Maybe, we hope so, but maybe not. We're just not exactly sure. All we know and all we need to know for the purposes of our discussion is that the universe used to be a lot smaller, a lot denser. How small, hot, dense, 
Let's say 13.8 billion years ago, our entire observable universe was about the size of a peach and had a temperature of over a quadrillion degrees. How does that work for you? Uh, Nance Graziano over on YouTube is asking, is it possible that the Big Bang was a result of some sort of supernova style explosion? It's also, again, this name, it's a tough name. It's a tough name to work around because the name suggests so much visual imagery that is not correct. When you say the word Big Bang, you think of a big boom, a big explosion that happened somewhere out there in the universe. No, the Big Bang was an expansion of space itself. Thank you for all those amazing questions, space cadets and callers. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, but before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter and you're listening to Space Radio and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I wanna tell you something, I just wanna be frank, science is mostly boring. Well, I should clarify. If you are a scientist engaged in the everyday, day-to-day work of science, it is thrilling and exciting. There are ups and there are downs and there are mistakes and there is excitement and there are new results. Watching from outside, science is grindingly slow and grindingly boring. Like you go to a scientific conference, all right? see how people are presenting their results. They could have, they could have be so enthusiastic. It's so exciting. I was like, oh, audience, you can't wait to see this big result. You, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. And then they'll have like some grungy looking graph, a line with like little error bars attached. And they'll say, look, 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 isn't this cool? <clears throat> and then people will start arguing and debating, but they won't be arguing or debating about what stuff that sounds interesting. They'll be arguing and debating about statistics and methodology. <sighs> From the outside, most of science, the day-to-day of science, looks intensely boring, okay? So communicating science is somewhat of a challenge because it's so much easier. Like I did today, I communicated the results of WASP 7.6b, but I didn't really dig in a lot into how the astronomers actually determined that it might be raining iron on this exoplanet. Why? Because it depends on methodology and statistics and it's actually in spectrums and all sorts of complicated things. And I decided in a four minute segment about the latest news that I'd rather focus on the awesomeness of iron rain. So I do the exact same thing. I try when I can, and I hope other communicators of science try when they can to explain the methodology and the methods. That's why whenever a space cadet asks a question about how we know something, I will jump on that as quickly as I can. And I hope other science communicators do because the real science, even though it's boring, the real part of science is in the methods. It is in the statistics. It is in the little grindy day-to-day stuff, in the little line charts with, with error bars on them. That's what makes science science. It's not the results. It's the methods. And speaking of results, I that's a horrible segue. Remember, you can go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. And if you subscribe for the next three months, support this show for three months, I will send you an autographed personalized copy of my new book, How to Die in Space, A Journey Through Dangerous Astrophysical Phenomena. It was a hoot to write. 
And I hope you enjoy reading it. It's coming out June, this June, June 2nd, I believe. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the links and to leave a voicemail and you can follow me on all social media channels i'm at paul matt sutter and of course thanks again space cadets for listening see you next week and remember science is for sharing end of transmission